We are in Psalms. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Psalms. Psalms 1. What we're going to be doing is going through a series of psalms. So next week we'll go to Psalm 16 and then we'll go to Psalms uh, 23. With there being 150 psalms, if I did a psalm a week, we'd be in psalms for three years, right? So we're going to hit some of our highlight psalms that Pastor Rich and I Rich pastors the Ellicott uh, campus. So uh, you can study ahead for Psalm 16 next week. But I would encourage you, uh, you could read through the Psalms as we go through them in the next eight to, to 10 weeks. If you took two Psalms a day, roughly, you'd be right on track for Psalms uh, 16 uh, next, next weekend. So let's pray together and ask that the Lord would really meet us as we study the Psalms. Father, we thank you for the Psalms, the truth that's there, that you are a refuge, that we can be honest and transparent with you, and as we fellowship with you, as we sing to you, that you bring us into greater understanding of who you are. And we do ask that the Psalms would be an encouragement to us over the next few weeks. We know that you're here with us, We ask that you would send your spirit to lead us and guide us in truth. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love, love, love the Psalms. So many times in my life, the Psalms have been a source of comfort and a source of refuge. What I really appreciate about the Psalms is they're honest. As you study and you read the Psalms, many of the Psalms have this pattern where the psalmist is in a place of difficulty, a place of discouragement, and expresses that to the Lord. And sometimes in our relationship with God, it's difficult for us to be that real, that transparent, that raw with the Lord. We feel that we can't do that with our relationship with God, but not the psalmist. The psalmist have no problem in pouring out their heart to the Lord. In that process, there's something that happens in the songwriter. Their perspective changes. They begin to focus on the attributes of who God is, and they leave encouraged. They leave in the glory of who God is. So I hope for us, as we journey through these psalms for the next eight to ten weeks, that we would begin to go deeper in expressing our heart to God. Not holding back and being real and transparent with the Lord. Finding God to be our refuge. These are songs. They were written as songs that the children of Israel would sing to the Lord. This is 150 songs that are written. Songs are powerful, aren't they? Songs affect our emotions in a way that the word, the spoken word, doesn't affect our emotions in quite the same way. When we take the truth of scripture and we sing it, it connects with our heart, it connects with with our soul. You can probably remember a particular song and that song takes you back to a moment in time. Songs can really impact our emotions and how we're feeling. I could play a playlist for you this morning that would almost guarantee for you to feel discouraged by the time you're done with four or five songs. They're all in the minor key. By the, you play those, you listen to those, you know, I was feeling fine until I listened to these five songs, right? Then there's other songs that are upbeat, and just by the beat, that affects our emotions. You're like, I was kind of discouraged, but now 
I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling some joy inside of my soul. One thing that's interesting to me as a pastor and our pastoral staff, as we worship together in song and music, God's a creator of song, it impacts you emotionally to where if you don't like a song, you really don't like a song. If you don't like a style of music, you really don't like a style of music. Why? Because we're not dealing with the logical side of our brain. We're dealing with the emotional side of us going, hey, wait a second, I really do not like this, right? But then also, if you do like a song, you come and you express it with emotion, going, no, I just, I just, I just loved worship today. It was so good. It it impacted me. Why? Because it's the emotional side of us. If you come to me with a theological question, there's not a lot of emotion behind it. I can almost tell in your body language as you're approaching me, go, I got a question. And if you're calm and laid back, we're going to be talking about the word. If you're, and sometimes as you're coming up to talk to me, you're, (laughs) I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about worship, right? Something didn't, settle correctly with you in worship. And as I've analyzed that and prayed about it, it's because worship really affects the emotional side of us. In the life of a church, you could change out the senior pastor and things are going to transition just fine, but change out the worship pastor and things are really going to get crazy in the life of a church. Why? Because it's the emotional part of us. So God uses songs God's the creator of songs to allow us to express our worship uh, to the Lord. In these 150 psalms, there's five divisions. You'll notice at the beginning of Psalms 1, it says book 1, Psalms 1 through 41. That's the, the first set of hymnals, the first 41 songs. There's a variety of authors inside of the psalms, primarily David. David writes the most of the Psalms. But you also have the sons of Asaph that wrote some Psalms. Sometimes we don't have the author. The author's not recorded for us. Moses even writes one Psalm. We'll study that, Psalms 90. The Psalm that we're going to look at today is a Psalm of wisdom. The psalmist is expressing to us wisdom through this song, instructing us in what our delight and meditation should be. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So blessed is the man. This psalm is described of how to be blessed from God's perspective. The word blessed literally means happy or content. A life that's filled with gladness and filled with joy. Is that something that we need in our lives? But we say, I would desire to be able to have joy from God's perspective. Not from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective to truly have a blessed life. Jesus lived this life. Jesus is an example of this to us. Hebrews, speaking about Jesus, the book of Hebrews, says that Jesus was anointed with gladness above all of his fellows because He hated wickedness, and he loved righteousness. I was talking with one of my daughters this week, and she asked this question. Do you think that Jesus had a sense of humor? Absolutely. 
We're made in God's image. I think Jesus expressed a complete glorified sense of humor, never sinned in his humor. But there was something electric about Jesus in his gladness. I think people were drawn to him by the joy that he had and his fellowship with the Father. And for us to be able to have this blessed life, to have a life that is filled with this kind of contentness, contentment, we're first instructed what we're not to do. We have to reject the counsel of the ungodly. There are many voices with many sources of counsel coming to us. One of those sources is godly counsel from the word of God. But outside of that, there's lots of counsel that is ungodly. We need to understand that every time we sit down to watch a movie, sit down to watch a TV show, take in a video, that there is a message that's being propagated from that movie, from that TV show. And I'm not saying don't watch movies and TV shows, but do it with wisdom to say, well, what are they trying to teach us? If you're a parent to sit down with kids, well, what are they trying to teach us through, through this? And is it godly counsel? Does it line up with the word of God? You're going to find a lot of quote-unquote godly counsel that's really not godly counsel. You're going to hear things that people are going to attach God's name to, but it doesn't line up with scripture. You may have adopted this idea that it's wisdom to live with somebody, have sex together, move in together before you get married. With this idea that you've got to test drive the car before you buy it. That's not in the book of Proverbs, right? That's worldly wisdom. That's ungodly wisdom. Godly wisdom says to save sex for marriage. To choose to honor God in your relationship, even in your dating years. You will find churches that propagate a message that says you get to choose your own gender. And God is love, and because he loves you, then you get to choose if you identify as a male or a female. But God's word says that he chooses. In Genesis, it says that God created us male and he created us female. We don't have a choice in whether we're male or female. God designed us male and he designed us female and he's not ashamed of his design. So when we get into God's word, godly counsel says, I've got to submit to the Lord in the gender that he has made me and created me to be. So pretty much as we look at our society, there's a lot of ungodly counsel. And what the psalmist is encouraging us to have this blessed life is we've got to reject ungodly counsel. There's a king in the Old Testament. His name was Rehoboam, and he's the son of Solomon. He takes over the reign for Solomon. David, Solomon, Rehoboam. He gets some wisdom from the elders. And the elders say, okay, Rehoboam, your dad actually was pretty hard on us. A lot of building projects. Heavy yoke. If you want favor with the people, then lighten the load. Lighten the, the workload on us. Rehoboam also goes to his friends, his peers, and gets some counsel. And the friends say, look, your dad, he was tough on us, but if you want to be respected, you've got to even be tougher. So Rehoboam adopts the counsel 
of the young men comes to the children of Israel and says, my pinky is going to be stronger than my dad's waist. My dad scourged you with whips, but I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. And he tightened the screws on the children of Israel to the point where they revolted, to the point where Israel split into two nations. And Rehoboam loses 10 of the 12 tribes because he chose ungodly counsel. So it's really important in our lives what kind of counsel we're going to choose. Are we going to listen to godly counsel or ungodly counsel? But then also, nor stand in the paths of sinners. So there is a path that sinners enjoy being on. Maybe you've noticed that when we sin, we desire company. It's not enough to just go sin on our own, but we're going to invite somebody into the sin. In our life, we're going to choose a path. We're going to choose a direction. And it's going to become well-worn in our life. And we don't want to be on the path of, of sinners. We're to be the friend of sinners. We're to be in, involved in people's lives that don't know Christ as their Savior. We're sinners that have been saved by grace. But this is talking about who's influencing me. Who are my closest friends? And am I on this path of, of sinners or am I clearly on God's path where I'm welcoming sinners into the gospel, where I'm welcoming sinners into the grace that I've received for the forgiveness of sins? So we reject ungodly counsel, but we reject this path of sinners. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. This path of, of sin, it's, it's broad, it's easy to find. But narrow is the path that, that leads to life. So with sin, sin is fun for a season, isn't it? Right? But then the problem with sin is that it wrecks our lives. It kicks back. Where righteousness is difficult at the beginning, but it leads to life. So evaluate your life for a moment. And say, what path am I on? Am I on this, this path of sinners? Or am I on the path that leads to life? The next is interesting, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. So we can be in a place where we're allowing a voice, people to scorn us and to mock us. And God's word is saying, don't sit in that seat of the scornful. Satan loves to be this voice of mocking. He loves to bring accusation against the people of God, the children of God. And to say, I'm not listening to that voice of condemnation. I'm listening to God's voice of forgiveness. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. But there is scorn that needs to be rejected. Maybe you have someone who is scorning you and you're taking it as gospel truth. What, what they're sharing about you isn't the truth of what God says about you. Maybe they're scorning your relationship with God. They're, they're scorning the word of God. But for some reason, it's starting to have credibility in your heart and mind. And God's message is, hey, you got to reject that. You got to get out of that seat of, of the scornful and make sure you're hearing God's word and, and God's voice. So this is what we are to do in verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. At this point, all that they have in regards to the word of God is the law. We have Genesis to Revelation. So this applies. Delight yourself in the word of God. A real healthy diet in the word of God comes from a place of delight. Delight is what we're excited about. 
what has our attention and our affection to get to the point where we're stoked about the word of God. How does that develop in our lives? Is when we taste and see that God is good. When we understand the kindness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, this love letter that has been given to us, that we don't see God's word as a rule or requirement, a box to check off, that I've got to read my Bible in order to be saved. But God has saved me by his grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and I get to read the word of God. This is how I grow in my relationship with God and the knowledge of God. So I apparently was born on a Sunday, and the next Sunday I was in church. And every Sunday I was in church. We had Sunday night church, and we had Wednesday night church. Became a kindergartner, went to Christian school. Went to Christian school all the way till I was in, in high school. And for me, growing up, I missed the delight of God's word. I got the duty of God's word. I heard a lot of messages on how you've got to read your Bible, but I didn't want to read my Bible because there was no relationship with the Lord. There was no understanding of God's grace that forgives my sins. And when God got a hold of my life, it was an awakening to the love of God. It was an awakening that he loved me when I wanted nothing to do with him, that God demonstrated his love towards me while I was still a sinner. And as I experienced the love of God, I woke up the next morning and God put a delight in my heart for the word of God. I'll never forget it. I wanted to read my Bible. It wasn't duty. It wasn't obligation. It's like, I got to get to know this love. Began reading the scriptures. And I would hope for us this morning, pray that God would awaken us to delight in the scriptures. And for some of you, this is going to be a new experience. It's been duty. It's been obligation. You think that God loves you more if you read the scriptures. You, you've tried reading the scriptures and it really hasn't impacted your heart and your life. And to be able to look at this from a different lens to say, this is relationship. I've been saved by grace through faith. I've trusted the Lord. I've tasted and seen that God's good. Now I'm desiring the word of God. And you praying and asking, God, would you give me a delight for the word of God? For others, there was a time in your life that you were marked by delight in God's word. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Where God awokened your appetite to the word and you couldn't get enough of, of the word and you're studying it and reading it and listening to sermons. But over time, the delight is gone. The duty's there. You get the responsibility, you get the obligation, but you can't say that you're delighting in God's word. My prayer for you this morning is that God would awaken you to delight where you're desiring the word of God. And then as we delight in God's word, the next step is to meditate upon it. And the word meditate is to ponder, to muse. It's like a cow chewing its cud where you just think it over and you think it over. This is very different from Eastern meditation, how they would define meditation. Eastern meditation is you empty your mind, where biblical meditation is you fill your mind. You fill your mind with the word of God and you're dwelling upon the word of God. 
And this is a step further in our relationship with God's word. So we're reading God's word, we're hearing God's word, and something stands out to us, the Holy Spirit illuminates something to us, it's like, I gotta underline that. I'm gonna write this down. And you, you write that verse down maybe in a, in a journal, or you have a, a Bible app that you're able to, to interact with, with the word of God. One of the things that happens to me is I'm spending time in God's word, read it in the morning, and it comes to lunchtime, and I can't remember what I read. I know I, I read this section of scripture, but I didn't really retain any of it. It takes me responding with the word in a different way, to, to highlight it, to write down some few thoughts, to memorize the scripture. Jesus memorized the scripture. When he was tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, he quoted scripture, quoted from the law, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He was meditating upon it. God's word was, was in his heart. So it's allowing God's word to go deeper into our hearts and in our lives, and this takes a little bit of discipline. This takes exercising that spiritual muscle to say, I'm going to memorize some scripture. I'm going to ponder some scripture. I'm going to meditate upon scripture. And specifically, I want to meditate upon scripture day and night. There's something special about how we start the day and how we end the day. Paul would write and say, don't go to bed angry lest you give Satan an opportunity to work on your heart and your life. Because as you're angry and you're meditating upon your, your anger, the enemy's going to come in. So what thoughts are you having as you begin the day? What thoughts are you having as you end the day? Each of us have a meditation where we're thinking about something eternal, internally as we, we go through the day. And it may be anger, maybe bitterness, maybe lust, maybe covetousness. It may simply be mindlessness. Or we're just numb and we're going through our day. And God's saying, I want to infuse the word of God. As we, as we delight in God's word, then we take that next, next step and we meditate upon God's word. What happens? What's the promise that comes if we delight and meditate in the word? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Some of you maybe have done this drive from Canyon City up towards Salida where you're driving along the Arkansas River. Big boulders, not a lot of vegetation, but every once in a while as you're winding up Highway 50 there, you'll see a big pine tree. It almost seems out of place. Like, what's this pine tree doing right here? And it's planted right next to the river and it's strong, and it's healthy. And that's the picture that we get here. He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. Israel is an arid climate, especially in the southern region. In order for a tree to grow, it's got to be by the water source. And guys, the message here is God's word is an adequate, excellent source. As you plant yourself in the word of God, it will provide the necessary nourishment, the necessary stability to bring forth fruit in your life. God's word will not return void. 
It's going to accomplish the purpose that it is sent for. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is active and living. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's going to have impact in our hearts and our lives if we'll choose to plant our roots in God's word through delighting in God's word, through meditating upon God's word, then we have that stability. We have that source of strength and nourishment. We're going to plant ourselves in something. Your roots are going in something. Your roots are are going into the things of this world. Maybe even a a confidence in in yourself. And, And God's saying, take your roots and plant them in God's word. Be that tree that's planted by the river of waters. Is that what you desire? To say, I want my life to count for eternity. I want to have fruit in in God's kingdom. If we want verse 3, we have to do verse 2. There's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. If we desire a life that bears fruit, then we have to choose to delight and meditate in God's word. Notice that it says that the fruit comes in its season, meaning that it takes time. If you do any type of gardening or you plant a fruit tree, it takes time. You plant a a young peach tree here in Colorado, you're going to wait several seasons before you start to get some peaches. And when those peaches first start to come, they are not very respectable. You're like, come on, is this all you got? Like this has been three or four years now. But then you go to a peach tree that's 15, 20 years old and, and you're starting to get some sizable fruit. We want fruit right now. We live in a microwave society and we're like, God, I've been reading my Bible for a week now. Where's the fruit? Where, where's the transformation that is promised in my life? You, you promised that fruit would come. It comes in its season. You can't Google and one click godly character in your life. It just, it just doesn't come that quick. It takes time as you're in the word of God and God's word's marinating and it's having impact and continue to be faithful and trust, man, the fruit's gonna come in season. The fruit is going to, to come in time. But there's this awesome promise here in verse three where it says that the leaf shall not wither. Speaking to the fact that through the different seasons of your life, through times of difficulty, through times of blessing, different ages, that you're going to be bearing fruit for God's kingdom. That's how strong the word of God is in our life, is it can cause us to be able to bear fruit throughout our whole entire lives. God says that whatever you do shall prosper. It's not meaning that you're going to be a millionaire, that you're going to always have an easy life, but it talks about the fact that God's hand of favor is upon your life. There's three men in the scriptures, I think, that really are examples of verse 3 that live this out. And the first is Joseph. As we look at the different seasons of Joseph's life, one thing we can say is God was always using him. God was using him in his family. God was using him as a slave. God was using him as a prisoner. God was using him as second in charge of all of Egypt because Joseph had planted himself in a relationship with God and the truth of who God is. The other is Joshua. Second is Joshua. Joshua was given this exhortation to meditate upon God's word day and night, to be strong and courageous, to meditate upon the word, to seek to live the word out. Joshua did that, and throughout his life, 
you see God using him, blessing him, prospering him in the things that matter. Daniel is very relevant to us, the third man, because Daniel was living in a very secular culture in Babylon, but he had purposed in his heart, he'd set apart his heart for the Lord in prayer and in the word and through all these different seasons of Daniel's life as a young man, as a middle-aged man, as an old man, God was using him throughout that whole entire time. Is there anything greater? Is there anything better? If we really look at our lives and go, how's my life going to be invested? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to say, by God's grace, God used me for his glory throughout my life. That's how powerful the word of God is. So this is the righteous life in the first three verses, and then verses four through six contrast it with the ungodly. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff, which the wind drives away. So chaff is that shell, the outer shell on wheat that has to be taken off so the wheat can be harvested into flour. There's no substance to chaff. There's no no value to chaff. So the ungodly life is like chaff, and the wind drives it away. The righteous life has strength and stability, a tree planted by the rivers of water, but chaff has no stability, no strength. It's simply blown away. So an ungodly life is always going to be tossed to and fro. Ungodliness looks good at the front door, but the back door, it's chaff. A righteous life looks difficult at the beginning, but it leads to stability and strength and godly character in in our lives. Ungodliness is never worth it. It always brings pain and destruction in our lives. In this life and then eternal life. In verse 5, it says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. As we read the scriptures... It shows us how much we need Christ's death and resurrection to provide forgiveness in our lives. Apart from Jesus, our ungodliness would bring judgment into our lives. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, declared that if we're angry in our heart, we've committed murder. If we have lust in our heart, we've committed adultery. Jesus calls us to be perfect as he is perfect. And very quickly, we start to understand that we're sinners before the Lord. That we need to be covered in Christ's righteousness. So if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you haven't trusted him, you haven't believed in him, ultimately you're in a place, if you continue in that position, that you'll stand before God and God justly will judge you for your sin. He'll justly judge you. And that would be true for all of us. The only thing that allows us to experience forgiveness and eternal life is the free gift of Christ, what he has, has done for us upon the cross. And the key element here in verse six, it says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So there is a benefit in walking with the Lord where there's a closeness in our relationship with him. He knows the way of the righteous. So what's the motivation for delighting in the word, meditating in the word, seeking to be a doer of the word? It's a closer relationship with the Lord. In 1 John 
chapter one, it says that Jesus is light. And to have fellowship with the light, we can't abide in darkness. So an ungodly life, a a life that's in rebellion to the Lord, it's going to affect our relationship with the Lord, to be known by the Lord and to, to know the Lord. So God is saying here, I know the way of the righteous. I'm walking in fellowship with the way of the righteous. There was a closeness that Joseph and Joshua and Daniel had in their relationship with the Lord. So God's message for us today in Psalms 1, in this beautiful song, is what is it going to be? Is it going to be a righteous life? Is it going to be an ungodly life? It's very practical. This week I've been reading about a woman named Susanna Wesley. Maybe the last name rings a bell. She's the mom of John Wesley, who God really used to spark a spiritual revival. And Suzanne Wesley, she had 19 children. Can you imagine that? 19 kids. And she went through a lot of hardship in her life as a mom. Several of her kids died in infancy. Her home was burnt down twice, and they had to rebuild it. No homeowner's insurance and those type of things. And she was dedicated throughout her life to the word of God and teaching her kids the word of God. She chose to instruct her kids at home and she was quite the educator in the word of God and in the things that are important for life. But the interesting thing about Susanna's life is it's contrasted by her husband, Samuel Wesley. And Samuel Wesley was a pastor. He was a clergyman, but he didn't have godly character. And throughout his life, he brought great damage to his family, and especially to his wife and to his daughters. At one point, he left and abandoned the family, and his decisions time and time again were a hindrance to the family. How difficult that would be for Susanna to say, here my husband is getting up and giving these messages but they're not real in his life. They're not real in in his character. I'm going to give up in, in following the Lord. But she just kept following the Lord, kept being faithful to the Lord, kept planting herself in the word of God, kept doing what the Lord had her to do. And we look back now over history and go, she was investing in her children, one of which was John Wesley, who God used in this amazing way to touch so many people's lives and bring people's lives into Christ. Her life bore fruit in the midst of very difficult circumstances. So as we look at our lives, you may say this morning and go, you know what? I'm not on the path that the Lord would intend. I have been sitting in ungodly counsel. I've been sitting in the seat of the scornful. I really haven't been investing in a relationship with God through the word of God. I want you to hear this. God allows U-turns. God is the God of change. He's the God of resurrection. He's the God of reconciliation. God doesn't just simply want church attendance. He's delighted that we're here together, but he wants our lives. He wants relationship. And to be able to say, I'm gonna take ownership of my relationship with God. 
hear this, the creator of the universe who designed you specifically, who sent his son to die for your sins and rise again, wants a relationship with you. And he has communicated to us through the word of God. Don't ever believe the lie that you can't understand the word of God. You can understand the word of God. You've got the best teacher living inside of you. That's the Holy Spirit. And make a choice today to say, I'm going to delight and meditate in the word of God. If you don't own a Bible, we've got some Bibles for you in the back. They're free. Please take them. It's our gift for you. You may be saying, where do I start? It's so overwhelming. This would be my advice to you. Start with the gospel of Mark. To me, it's the clearest and most succinct gospel that we have. If you don't know where the gospel of Mark is, look at the table of contents in the front of your Bible. And as you go to read, pray first. Pray that God would speak to you through the word and get a pencil or pen. Be ready to underline some verses. Get ready to copy down some verses, to type them into your phone, to write them on some three by five cards into a journal. I'm going to meditate upon these scriptures. And you're going to understand some and you're not going to understand others, but begin to develop this discipline of a life in God's word to say, Lord, I want to know you in the word of God. And if you're doing this, a life in the word of God where you're meditating on God's word day and night, be encouraged, don't give up. I think that this is the most important thing that you can be doing in your relationship with God. Just keep planting your roots deep into the word of God. And if you've lost sight of this in some way in your relationship with God, and you're effective in your relationship with the Lord, you're, you're consistent, your, your character is there, and you think that you can afford to be on cruise control, get off of cruise control. God has got a feast for you. He's ready to meet you in God's word. He doesn't want you living off of meals of the past. He wants to meet you this morning in, in the word of God. But here's the challenge. Do something. Do something, please. Don't let another week go by where the word of God is not present in our lives. One little snack a week is not going to be enough. Sunday morning, once a week, is not going to be enough to feed our souls. God wants to meet us day and night. And it's way too easy to have a week go by and nothing change. What choked out the word of God? The cares of this life, Jesus told us in the parable of the sower. What's the first thing to go as our lives get busy? It's the word of God. It's God's word. The bills, the laundry, the oil getting changed, shoveling the snow. And my goodness, there's just so much good stuff on Netflix these days, right? So any extra time goes to, to entertainment and to say, okay, Lord, Awaken that delight inside of my soul and inside of my heart. And I'm going to start today. I'm going to engage in the word of God and develop a plan, develop a reading plan. After you finish the gospel of Mark, just keep going in the New Testament. Seek the Lord and say, God, where would you have me read? Reach out to some brothers and sisters in Christ and say, you know what? I'm being awakened to the word of God. I'm going to really endeavor to spend time in God's word and start sharing with them the things that you're learning. Expect it to be difficult. 
Satan's not going, woo, they're getting serious about the word. This is great. Expect, okay, I'm going to get serious about the word. There's going to be some opposition as I do so in my life, but it's going to be worthwhile. There is a feast that is, awaits us, an absolute feast that we can't even imagine the goodness of God and the word of God if we'll take time to spend delighting and meditating upon God's word. So would you stand with me and let's pray and ask that the Lord would give us a delight for his word. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to communicate to us through your word. And we come before you and we ask that you would forgive us for feasting on all the things of this world to the point where we have no appetite for the things of the word. And would you awaken, create in us a delight for your word, a desire to spend time in your word. I pray for those that have never experienced you speaking to them through the word of God. Lord, would you bless them as they begin to open their Bibles, to study the scripture, meditate upon the scripture. Lord, for some that the word of God has drifted in their life. It's no longer a vital part of their week, a vital part of their day. Lord, would you just awaken that within them again? For those that the word of God is strong in their life, would you even make it stronger? Lord, we wanna know you. We want to enter into this feast that you have for us. We want our lives to be planted by the river of water that we can bear fruit for your glory. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.